We didn't know that at the time. All we knew was they stopped, Shatner and Nemo stopped talking to Roddenberry, came over to us and said, we're having a disagreement with Gene, so we're going home. And when it's resolved, we'll come back. We were, what? Hello, I'm David Frankham, and uh, you may remember me, I hope you remember me, from an episode of Star Trek called Is There in Truth No Beauty, in which I played a character named Larry Marvick. And now, Trek Untold. Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I am your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. Today, we're taking a trip back to October 1968 with a guest who was a major part of an excellent episode of the original Star Trek series. Not only that, he also holds the distinction of being our oldest guest on this podcast. David Frankham was born in 1926 and has done all sorts of gigs in Hollywood, but Trekkies like us know him best for his role as Larry Marvick in the third season TOS episode, In Truth Is There No Beauty. That episode introduced us to the Medusins and gave us the second Star Trek appearance of Dan Muldor, and also a very emotional Spock, even if it wasn't actually Spock in control of himself, but that's a story for a different day. Beyond Star Trek, you've seen David's work in Return of the Fly alongside Vincent Price, classics like King Rat, Johnny Tremaine, Ten Who Dared, Episodes of The Outer Limits, McCloud, The Beverly Hillbillies, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and you've also heard him as Sergeant Tibbs in Disney's original 101 Dalmatians, among many other roles. Along with his friend Jonathan Dixon, David regales us with stories from his time in the industry, which, to be clear, is still ongoing. David doesn't know the meaning of the word retirement and is always ready to pounce at a new role with his positive attitude and wonderful outlook on life and performing. Mr. Frankham is a humble breath of fresh air with tales about some of Hollywood's greats that you're going to love hearing all about, and consider this a preview of some of what's in his stellar autobiography, Which One Was David? We're going to have links to that in the show notes as well, so if you want to pick up his book after listening to this episode, I highly urge you to do that. I could hype up the man all day, but I'd rather you hear from him, so let's chat with a cornerstone of a different era of Hollywood with Mr. David Frankham. But before we get into this week's episode, I have to ask you... Are you following Trek Untold on social media yet? You can find us over on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, all at Trek Untold, one word with no spaces. You can also become a Patreon supporter for this podcast over at patreon.com slash trekuntold. Here, you can directly contribute to keeping this show running at full power for as low as a few bucks a month. If you do this, you'll have early access to new episodes, the ability to ask future guests questions, check out exclusive merchandise, and other special benefits. We've also got an official merch store and an Amazon store filled with Star Trek goodies. So if you want to rock a Trek Untold t-shirt to the next con you're going to, or order something Star Trek related for yourself or someone else, please use the links in the show notes to help us help you. Shout out to our show sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions, makers of fine 3D printed Star Trek inspired toys and accessories for collectors of all kinds. But you'll hear more about them later on. 
Now, without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. And welcome back to Trek Untold right now. And joining us on the other side of the screen, well, he's now the Trek Untold record holder for the oldest guest I've ever had on this show. Uh, We are joined today by Mr. David Frankham, along with Jonathan Dixon, who is an actor, composer, David's biographer, and his best friend. So, gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm the oldest, did you say? You are. Previously, the record was held by Paul Dooley. And I I shouldn't say, you know, was because he's still with us, but Paul Dooley was definitely the oldest. And now you have beaten him. So congratulations. I'm going to mail you a trophy for that. Thank you. I hope you and I meet again when I'm 100, three years from now. (laughs) I would absolutely love that to happen. And and then again, for every year after and all the way to 300 years old, if possible. (laughs) And I want to commend you, David. I see you've got your Star Trek badge on as well. Yes. And yes, that's right. 101 Dalmatians. My medals. Yes. Those are all gifts from fans. So (laughs) I think they gave this one to him at the Trek Condoroga and Ticonderoga where they recreated the sets. Uh, Very nice. Yeah, we're going to run down a whole bunch of things because, David, you've got such a prolific career, and I want to talk to you about way more things beyond just Star Trek. So we're going to kind of run down the David Frankham resume today. Okay. But I I would love to start with you. uh, If you can give us some background information on yourself. So I'd like to know where you grew up, who your parents were and what they did, and what little David wanted to be when he grew up. Okay. Well, I lived in the county of Kent, about 30 miles south of London, for most of my teenage years. My father was a a Navy permanent member of the Navy. Actually, my mother was a Wren, which is the British equivalent of the Waves. And so my mother and father met in World War I and married, of course. And so here I am. I was born in 1926. And I think when I was 16, that was about the first time that I had rumblings that I wanted to be an actor, very specifically a movie called Now Voyager with Betty Davis and Paul Henry. But for some reason, don't ask me why, I was struck and overwhelmed by a marvelous actress in that film called Gladys Cooper. And on the way home, it was a long walk from the cinema, My parents and I have been talking about, now you're 16, David, you graduated from secondary school, what do we do? And they were talking about the possibility of my being an architect. Didn't really appeal to me, but anyway, on the way home, flash of lightning, I want to be an actor like that lady and now Voyager. So when I got home, my father, although he was in the Navy, was then working from home. And I think, yes, he'd gone to bed and my mother was in the living room sewing something. And I burst in. I said, Mom, I know what I want to be. I want to be an actor. And my mother was a Scot, my father English, very stoic, my mother. And she was sewing away. And she said, well, we'll talk about that in the morning when I've talked to your father. So that was okay. Next morning, my mother said, well, I've talked to your dad. And we decided, and I think she's quite right about this, that acting is not the most dependable of professions. So I, I think you have an artistic bent. We'll pay fees for you to study to be an architect. So that was the end of my possible career as an actor then and there at 16. So dutifully, I was two years then studying architecture. We all knew in, in the 40s that we, we young fellows would be drafted, called up. And indeed, I was in on January the 18th, 19... 19- 45. I was drafted for three years in the army. 
And of course, we were immediately taught how to kill people with hand grenades and machine guns. Never came to that with my age group because I think in May of 1945 was VE Day. Germany surrendered. And so although we did spend, uh, us young folks, three years in the army, we didn't have to kill anybody. And David, did you go overseas anywhere when you were serving? Indeed. Thanks to the army, I spent a year in India. Then we moved on to, let's see, Singapore, and then another year in Malaya. And we moved up eventually, my my platoon, to Kuala Lumpur in Malaya. And little did I know it, but that was about to change the whole course of my professional direction. Because in the sergeant's mess, I think I was a sergeant then, there was a bulletin on the board invite from Radio Malaya, inviting members of the armed forces to select their eight favorite records and to come into the studio, the winner, the most interesting one, to present them on the air. I thought, well, well, what the heck, why not? So I sat down, had a mug of tea, and wrote my down my eight favorite records. And about two weeks later, my commanding officer said, Frankham, apparently there's something here from Radio Malaya. You've won some sort of prize. And the prize was that I was going to go to Radio Malaya and sit at a microphone and introduce my eight favorite records. And that was actually the beginning of a whole different direction of my career. Didn't do any architect after that one wonderful session in the evening at Radio Malaya. Well, explain why. Because Mr. Jackson asked you, oh yes, the, the the what would he be? He would be the the manager, I guess, of that that branch of Radio Malaya. The main branch was in Singapore, but Mr. Jackson had sat at home and listened to me. I was leaving. I just finished. I thought I'll never forget these this half hour talking about my favorite singers. Well, I'm going to jump in just because you've said that you sat behind the microphone and for the first time in life felt. I said, I did actually said this, Matthew, slid in behind the chair, in the chair behind the mic. I've heard of people having mic fright. I didn't have it. I just had a feeling I'm home. So I, again, I say, I will always remember this. And I was leaving. The phone rang and the announcer said, oh, Mr. Jackson would like to talk to you, David. I said, hello. He said, I thoroughly enjoyed your presentation. I wonder if the army allowed it. Would you be interested in being trained for a relief announcer here at Radio Malaya. Yes, I would, Mr. Jackson. And so as soon as I got back to my army headquarters, my commanding officer said, yes, as long as it doesn't interfere with your army duties, be, feel free to go and do this. And so every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday for almost a year, 1947 this was, I was the relief announcer. They taught me to read news, introduce programs, and reading the news was a little antiquated, we'd say today. There was a tele, tele machine there in the studio, and it would chatter away, and out would come reams of paper from the headquarters in Singapore with news items on it. So I would be tearing it off like rolls of toilet paper and sit with all, all these things. This is, I, my name is David Frankham, and here is the latest news. So I, I had a lesson in sight reading right away there for a whole year. It was wonderful. And, well, of course, I, you know, eventually all of us were sent home. And before I left, I said to Mr. Jackson, Mr. Jackson, 
I don't want to be an architect. I love what I've been doing with you. I, I would like when I get home to return to civilian life, I'll have enough money to pay my passage back here to Kuala Lumpur, and I would love to be on the staff again. Mr. Jackson said, can't do it, David. This is a government agency where we already have our allocation of two announcers. You've helped us out a lot in the last year, but we wouldn't be able to pay you, so you couldn't support yourself. But what I will do, David, is I will give you a letter of introduction to an old friend of mine who, incidentally, Matthew, was a war hero. His name was Winford Vaughan Thomas, and he was then with the BBC. He was on the D-Day landings with the microphone, very brave man. So I arrived in England, got off the boat back to civilian life, handed him my letter of introduction for Mr. Jackson, and Winfrey von Thompson read it and said, yes, I think you'll be very useful to the BBC. So there and then, I was a member of the BBC staff for seven years. Winfrey von Thomas said, I think it'd be best in the, I think the, the, the European service. So he sent me over to the headquarters of the BBC European service. And I worked for them for seven years until 1955. So you went from the military over to the BBC and in some way along the way you found acting. So how did that come into the play? Well, when I was 60, as I said, I went to see, I'd never thought of being an actor. I've loved movies. From the age of 13, I was a regular movie goer. And uh, I saw now Voyager. I was just stunned by Gladys Cooper playing Betty Davis's vicious mother. I don't know why, Matthew, but it lit up a fire in my belly, as it were. I thought, this is what I want to do. I want to do what she's doing. So I, I did, you know, tell my mother when I got home, my father was already asleep. In the morning, they said, no, we, we, we don't think acting is a very reliable profession. So for two years, I was sidelined into studying to be an architect before I was drafted on the 18th of January, 1945. But all that time, all that time, I thought, oh, darn it. After I've done my three years of war service, I'll have to come back. Another three years of study without income uh, to be an architect. And I, I just didn't know how how that's going to work out. Oh, of course, fate played a hand in it, as you know. From the BBC, you went from the Foreign Service to Europe producing your own programs, and that's how you met a lot of actors, right? Oh, yes, but that took time, of course. Oh, uh, I began as a newsreader. This time, of course, I didn't have to draw out rolls of paper and read the news. I found myself talking at 3.15 in the morning to different countries in Europe, to to Russia at 3.15, Czechoslovakia, Holland, France, Germany, everywhere. I just loved that. I suddenly realized I had a flair for reading the news. It was always in front of me, of course. I didn't have to memorize any. And then the way it worked was I would read a news item. As, uh, somebody sitting opposite me in a chair at, at uh, the BBC would read the translation of it into whatever country I was talking to. So it was back and forth between the two of us. And that went on there in in London for about, from 1948 to 1952. I had a dream job, Matthew. I, I loved what I was doing. I had a good salary, a lovely apartment. It was on a three-day-on, three-day-off schedule. So on my three days off, 
I would see every play, every movie in in London. It was a dream job, except I still had this nagging feeling, darn thing wouldn't go away. I wanted to be an actor. But more about that later. Do you remember what your very first professional acting gig was? Outside of the BBC and outside of that stuff, do you remember what your first gig was? Was it on stage or was it on television? It was on television in front of 25 million people. By then I had moved from, I decided, I gave up my dream job, moved to Hollywood with, with thanks from a wonderful, I call her my fairy godmother, a great singer, Rosemary Clooney, had been a guest on my radio show. By then I had, you know, gone on from news reading to producing my, my own radio show, The Bright Lights. And Rosemary said the magic words at the end of our chat on the air, when we were off the air, I said, do you think I could make a living working in radio in Hollywood? She said, call me when you get there if you decide to go. She opened all doors at the American Embassy. It was so easy for me. So eventually, yes, I got my first acting job, but it was in front of 25 million people. I'd never acted. I didn't know, can I act? You know, this was live, Matthew, live. So we had five days of rehearsal on that first show. It was an adaptation of Daphne du Maurier's September Tide, a play which I had seen in London. So I was familiar with the plot. So I had five days to get used to these three huge cameras, huge cameras on rubber tires so they didn't squeak in the studio. And so we rehearsed for five days. The day came. 5.30 in the morning, we had to report. We had to do a a rehearsal for for the cameras, a rehearsal for us. And then the time came at noon. It was called Matinee Theatre on every day, Monday through Friday. And this was my moment of truth. After the rehearsal, we had an hour uh, for me to just sit and get very nervous and think, please let me remember my lines. And so the moment came. my, My character came on in... The fourth part of it, they were divided into 15-minute episodes with commercials, of course, on NBC. So I sat for three quarters of an hour watching the other actors on camera. And then there was a break for commercials. And my camera came up to me. And I knew when the red light went on, I had to act. I prayed to some god out there somewhere, please let me remember my lines. And make a long story short, I did. It went well. And... I found myself then later doing five more episodes of of Matinee Theatre for NBC. So it was a very nervous but a a great beginning to my acting career. And Matthew, I'm going to leap in here because David has left out the key part between being an unknown radio announcer showing up in Hollywood and getting an acting job. (laughs) So can you tell how, how that led to it and basically how Elizabeth Taylor and Alec Guinness started his acting career? Well, yeah, a, a fine actor, you may be familiar with him, Matthew. Doug Bogart had given me people to call when I got to Hollywood. I'd interviewed him twice, and he was a big star, you know. And he said, well, if you're going there, do you know anybody? I said, no. He said, write these names down. Danny Kay, let's see, Elizabeth Taylor, Michael Wilding, and others. And I said, I don't know them. He said, of course you don't, but it's, it'll be called networking. Call them, they'll invite you up for a drink or a cup of tea, or a crumpet, or something, and that way you'll get to know people. And so I did, and I think I called on the 27th of January, February, 
I was sitting, I called the other people, I'd met Danny Kaye, but they were all nice, but I, I saw no, you know, no length to a friendship there. So on the 27th of February, I, I hadn't called Michael Wilding, who was also at that time huge star in England. So I called him, well, hello, may I speak to Michael, please? And the lady said, oh, Michael's in Africa right now, making a film, may I help? I'm his wife. And I went, I'm talking to Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> the number one star in the world at the right. time. And so, <laughs> Only Liz Taylor, no big deal. Just called she, her, no, yeah. but she said, it's my birthday today. Will you come up and share it with me? I have some friends in, glass of champagne. I said, yes. I said, but I don't drive. She said, my assistant can meet you if you can get to the Beverly Hills Hotel. She'll meet you and drive you up to the house. So up I went, and there she was, violet eyes, double eyelashes, an absolute knockout. And I walked into this room with Lana Turner, Debbie Reynolds, Jane Powell. And I thought, my God, this is really Hollywood at its peak, you know. So I enjoyed my time with them, chatted away. And I was, as I was leaving, I thought, I'll always remember this. Elizabeth said to me, you said you want to be an actor. You're awfully pale to be an actor. You better come up and swim every day and get a tan. And so I did. All from the time I talked to her on the 27th of February until I think around the 8th of July when I finally got my first part on Matinee Theatre. So I did the job and got home and the phone rang and I thought, oh, it's my, it's my agent calling to congratulate me. Hello. Hello, it's Elizabeth. Michael and I watched you on your little black and white TV. You're one of us now, David. I mean, imagine me being one of them, you know. And now we're going to backtrack to when you were waiting for Elizabeth Taylor's assistant to show up at the hotel, because it, and that explains how David got his agent. This is the most extraordinary coincidence professionally in my whole life. So I had decided, I don't know why, right out of the blue to call Michael Whiting, got Elizabeth Taylor, showed up as, as arranged at the Beverly Hills Hotel. And while I was waiting there at the reception desk, in walked Alec Guinness, his wife, and his son, his son Matthew. Now, in England, I, he had been a guest on my radio show. And at the end of the show, I said to him, Mr. Guinness, he wasn't sir then, do you think I, I could get started as an actor? I, I so much want to. How old are you? Oh, 29. Too old, you wagged your finger. He's too old. You should have started at 21, carrying a spear at Stratford. Well, of course, I wasn't. 31, and I wasn't carrying a spear. So in England, Alec Guinness said I was too old. Suddenly, here I am in February at the Beverly Hills Hotel in Hollywood, and Alec Guinness is walking in saying, oh, are you here for the BBC? I remember you. And I said, no, I've come to be an actor. Oh, well, he said, now, listen, I'm seeing my wife and son off on a plane today back to England. I've just finished a film at MGM called The Swan, Let's see now. He said, I, I have to go there tomorrow just to finish one day of dubbing. Can you be at the hotel at 7 a.m. tomorrow morning? And I'll give you a letter of introduction. All of this from the man who said no in England was saying yes in Hollywood. And so that's what I did. And sure enough, at 7 a.m., Alec was at his desk in his hotel room writing out three letters of introduction, one to David Niven, the actor, one to the assistant director on The Swan, the movie he just finished with Grace Kelly, and another one to Peter Shaw, who was Alex's agent at William Morris. 
And Peter, by the way, was married to Angela Lansbury. But that comes later. So next day, he said, come out to MGM with me. Well, that was a thrill. I sat in the dubbing room at MGM, watched Alec doing his dubbing, redoing the lines with planes flying over, you know, making a lot of noise. So the dialogue had to be redone. So we finished and we sat in the commissary before we went back to his hotel and in walked Grace Kelly. <gasps> and she had, she'd come into dub that afternoon. So kissy, kissy, you know how actors are. They embraced. And then she said, Alec, it's been wonderful working with you. And away she went. And I said to Alec Guinness, gosh, she's almost like a princess already. And Alec said, yes, she does take herself rather seriously. <laughs> So that's how things got going. So yeah. Peter Shaw got you the job on live TV. That's right. He did indeed. I told a lie because Peter knew I, I, he got my letter of introduction from Alec Guinness. He said, well, you've never acted before. We can't represent you, but I will send you to the best, act, best agent in Hollywood for British actors. Her name was Maureen Oliver. So I went to see Maureen and she said, well, I can't represent you right now. I have an actor on the books who resembles you quite a bit, but keep in touch. So I didn't actually, you know, get going with her right at that moment. But eventually she did represent me. The other actor went to New York, and so I was hers then. And I said, but Maureen, I've never acted before. She said, well, you have now, dear. And she had typed up the Irene Weller players in Kent and a list of nine parts that I wish I had played. But I haven't done that. She said, dear, I know you haven't. But NBC won't know that. Hand this resume to them when you get there to audition. So I did. Of course, they were impressed. <laughs> the casting director said, yeah, it's very good. Okay, well, read a few lines for the director. So I did from September. He said, yes, you'll do fine. So the very next day, there I was at the reading around the table with the other actors and the director, Larry Schwab, was his name. And I was suddenly a professional actor, in name at least, anyway. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is sponsored by Triple Fiction Productions. Celebrating 15 years in business in 2023, TFP creates 3D-printed Star Trek and sci-fi-inspired items that fit into any collection. Whether you're a cosplayer who wants a Starfleet phaser, a Bajoran tricorder, or a Klingon dagger, or a toy collector looking for that special accessory or diorama to make your figures truly stand out, Triple Fiction Productions has exactly what you need. And for you figure fanatics, that includes products that are the perfect size for Galoob, Mego, Playmates, and everything in between. All products are 3D printed in the U.S., with new designs constantly being updated on their website. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, where the more you order, the more discounts you receive. TFP also has a pay-what-you-want section, where clearance or misprinted items are available at a discounted price. Best of all, every product can be shipped worldwide. As a special bonus for listeners of this show, Trek Untold has a special discount code just for you. Enter UNTOLD10 at checkout for 10% off of all orders with no minimum purchase required. That's 10% off using UNTOLD10. To see all of their products, head to triple-fictionproductions.net. Or to stay up to date on their newest products, find them on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 
Triple Fiction Productions, where something is only impossible until it happens. Hey, I'm Licia Naff, a.k.a. Ensign Sonia Gomez from Star Trek TNG, and now Captain Sonia Gomez on Lower Decks with her own ship, the Archimedes. Yay! I finally got a promotion after 25 years. So anyway, I'm here to talk about drivebydogooders.org. It's a little charity I run where we go to the outskirts of Skid Row and from our car windows, we hand out basic human essentials like water, wipes, cold stream cheese, socks, tarps, masks, t-shirts, things to keep people warm. So we just think that everyone deserves clean water, some protein and a way to clean themselves, especially during Corona. We also hand out masks to those who really, really need it, who live in tents on the street, mainly the disabled and elderly who have a really hard time getting to services. And we do all of this with no agenda, just pure giving, no overhead. If you'd like to go to the website and donate, it's 100% tax deductible. And if you click on the donate button, you can go right to the $35 option and pick a signed autograph picture of either the Star Trek The Next Generation or Lord X or... Total Recall, where I played the three-breasted mutant hooker on Mars, and that's the X-rated version. Put in the comments section your address and anything you'd like me to write, and I'll personally inscribe it and mail it off to you immediately. And again, that's drivebydogooders.org. Ensign, I mean, Captain Sonia Gomez, signing off. David, you teased me a little bit with this, so I got to ask you about it right now, because on Trek Untold, we actually talk a lot about Angela Lansbury. This might be a surprise to you. Really? But she comes up a lot because so many actors who've worked in Star Trek worked on Murder, She Wrote, or they performed with her on stage. So I, I love hearing stories about Angela. Uh, if you've got some stories about her, please tell us. Oh, I do. Well, I didn't meet her. I met, thankfully, her husband, who virtually recommended me to NBC. and got that first part. And I knew he was married to her. And, of course, I kept hoping maybe she'll come in while I'm talking to her. But she didn't. It was some years later that I was then making the most of my income by working with a, a friend who was a designer, an architectural designer. He was building a house. And it turned out that he was a great friend of Angela Lansbury. So one day uh, I was helping him you know, build a house just in my spare time. It was fun in Beverly Hills. And he said, well, I'm seeing Angela today. Why don't you come with me? So I did. And my introduction to Angela, Matthew, I can't remember the year, was Angela's rear end. She was on her hands and knees in the rubble of her house, which had just burned down, searching in the rubble for her jewelry. That was 1970. 1970. Thank you, Jonathan. She says, hello. Hello. Hello, Don. Nice to meet you, David. She found her jewelry. Now, remember, her house had burned down. She lived in Malibu. Neighbors had given Angela and her husband, Peter, a house, just a roof over their heads. Was she upstairs? If she was, she didn't show it. The fact that her house had just burned down, she said, oh, come on now, we're going back to this house that neighbors had given us. I'm making a stew. Come and have Irish stew. So we went in, she stirred up the stew, made the stew, and we were sitting at the stew. Not a word from her about, oh, my house is burned down. She was just delightful. And suddenly a knock at the door, in walked a, a legendary agent named Abe Lasfogel, her agent. And she was doing a play at that time, in which she pointed out to me, in which I get raped on stage, but 
more about that later, she said. And so there was a problem with the play. And so Abe had come in to help iron that out. So she and Abe went to sit elsewhere in this house from a neighbor. And that's my first meeting with her. Over the years, as I got to know Jonathan, we went three times to New York to see her in a play. And of course, when we ever were in, in Los Angeles, well, then we would stay with Angela. She was so dear, so friendly and down to earth. There was no bullshit about Angela. For instance, she made a film called In the Cool of the Day with Jane Fonda on location in Greece. And they were flying there, and Angela was sitting next to Jane. And Jane, who was kind of a method actress, I think, said to Angela, you know, I won't be talking to you much during the filming because our characters don't like each other. Well, privately, Angela said to us, I mean, for God's sake, we are actors. But she didn't say that to Jane Fonda. <laughs> so I think, yes, all actors absolutely adored her, just absolutely down to earth. Now, we saw her in New York in... I mean, a Little Night Music and, and the, the Best and Man. And the Best Man. And, and we would have lunch with her afterwards. And she she actually walked to the theater. She had a condominium in New York. I said, you can't do that. You'll be mobbed. She said, no, of course I won't. Nobody knows me in New York. And she just, you know, walked, took a walk every lunchtime before a matinee of, in that case, Blythe Spirit. So over the years, getting to know her, I just, I think yeah, it's true, Jonathan, we just adored her. She was so, so down to earth, so no nonsense whatsoever. To tie this slightly into Star Trek, I think it was in 2019, I had written a short script that I thought, wouldn't it be cool to have something where David and I and Angela could act together in this short film? <laughs> I We got some potential good-looking funding and some good director friends of mine. It would have been a civil war period and they would have played like ancient southern witch people or something. <laughs> but sort of like a Twilight Zone. Yes. Um, so she, we had all this lined up, but then we felt like her world was sort of closing a little bit mm. in her circle. We thought, oh, we may have missed our chance. And yes, we did. So she said, it's wonderful. I love it. But, you know, I'm... I think it was her way of saying she wasn't up to doing it yes. without saying that. So. Then we thought, who else would be perfect for this? And it'll tie into what you talk about later. But we thought Diana Moldauer from his episode of Star Trek would have been perfect too. We talked to her a couple of times. She was so nice. And then the pandemic hit and it all <laughs> blew up. But potentially there was going to be a teaming up of David and Diana Moldauer again. Yeah. But By then, when we talked to her, she had retired happily, very happily. She now lives on Martha's Vineyard, and she runs an animal shelter. And no matter how hard I try to come back and do these events, I'm with a company now called Celeb Works, and they send us around the country chatting to people. I said, Diana, you would love it. No, she said, I'm quite happy here. In Martha's Vineyard, so we never had a reunion, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, David, check out this wonderful segue I'm about to do here. So since we're talking about Diana and we're talking about animals, I want to talk a little bit about animal stuff with you, because you were Sergeant Tibbs in 101 Dalmatians. How's that for a segue, right? Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you were you were Sergeant Tibbs, the cat from 101 Dalmatians. I'd love to talk to you about that. But I also know that your story of working at Disney goes beyond just that one film. Uh, I know you worked on another film as well, so uh, I'd love that you could just kind of walk us through your time working at Disney and as well as meeting the man behind the magic. 
Indeed. I was simply told another, you know, Joe, I was doing well, lots of good acting television jobs. And I'd done, let me see, by 1960, I'd done two, two movies with Vincent Price. So I was coming along very nicely. So the uh, agent called, off to Disney now to audition for what? And she said, with the part of a cat. I said, a cat? She said, yes, just go read the lines and see how it goes. So I went, met the casting director, read what turned out to be Sergeant Tibbs, and he said, yes, that's fine. He said, we'll just get Walt to okay this, and then you're in. So got the call, went home, got the call. Yes, Walt had okayed me. Now, he never saw anybody auditioning for a voice. And for that reason, he missed out on Deanna Durbin. Deanna, in 1937, had auditioned for Walt Disney for the, the singing part of Snow White. But Walt didn't like her voice. So she moved, she never did get to work at Disney. She moved over, as you know, to Universal International. It was such a hit. She saved that studio from bankruptcy. <laughs> but anyway, so first day of, of recording lines. So I was in the studio with a fine actor whose name was Pat, J. Pat O'Malley. He was to play the sheepdog. And there was a, the horse was played by a, a wonderful singer actor named Thurl Ravenscroft. So for this first session, the two of us, J. Pat O'Malley and I, were looking at our script. And a man came in and introduced himself as Willie Ritherman. He was one of the nine old men who had started out with Disney at the very beginning. Wow. He led us over to the walls of the studio covered with storyboards and explained exactly what Sergeant Tibbs and the, the sheepdog were going to do. So then, okay, we got back to our seats and the microphone over us. I noticed somebody sitting at our feet, sketching, apparently sketching me and, and ske uh, sketching J. Pat O'Malley. And Jonathan has said that he can see our features in the characters we played in 101 Relations. People have noticed as they first brought it to my attention where I got a special edition book of 101 Dalmatians that shows some storyboard. And luckily, it just happened to be the sequence with Sergeant Tibbs. And it, the cat looks completely different. He has like big fluffy cheeks and hair standing up <laughs> on top of his head. <laughs> And then you notice between that and the way he ended up in the movie, somebody said he looks like David a lot. And so they somehow put David's features onto a cat physiognomy and made it work. But people say, look at Sergeant Tibbs' eyes. They're David's eyes right around that time period, especially. It is funny because I was just rewatching some of the scenes with Sergeant Tibbs. And I was like, that feels like, like I haven't met you yet, but that like that feels like David. So that, that's kind of oh, cool yeah. that actually he's worked into it. And, well, and, and well, going back to David's history, David has just without thinking, because he is in the British Army, he would, when he's doing his line, say, Yes, sir, yes, sir. Yes, sir, right, sir. Okay, so yes, sir. probably yeah. sketch that. You'll come back to me. Yes, yeah. 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 So, anyway, okay. uh, while we were recording our lines, I kept wondering, Is Walt coming in? I finally got up the nerve to say to Willie Ritherman, Will Mr. Disney be coming? No. He explained to me then that he never saw the voice actors. Luckily for me, during these several recording sessions, as Sergeant Tibbs, Walt Disney cast me in what was to be a two-part television show called Ten Who Dared about the discovery of the Coronado River. And uh, Coronado, no, no. Colorado. Colorado River. And so, fortunately, I got the part and we're off we went to Moab in Utah, the Arches National Monument. Fabulous scenery. We, we were there about two weeks to shoot this 
this two-part TV show. Walt had such imagination. When the first dailies arrived from that location shooting, he phoned the director, William Bodine, and said, no, make this a feature. We must take advantage of this marvelous scenery. So we were there about six weeks. I had to run out and buy socks and underwear because we thought we would be back at the studio. But when we got back from location, I think we had about a week to 10 days of interiors. I mean, shot again, they were exteriors, but shot in the studio. On the very first day, in came Walt Disney. And I was, you know, the, he was the most creative, as you know, Matthew, of all the studio heads. He wasn't just a Louis B. Mayer or a Jack Warner. He was a hands-on creative. Well, he was the voice of Mickey Mouse. So he was a living legend. And in he came. And I, he introduced himself to the 10 of us, the 10 actors. And I said, oh, Mr. Disney is such a... He said, no, around here, everybody calls me Walt. I couldn't do it, Matthew. Every morning when he came in, I almost did it. You know, I just, I couldn't call, I, you can't call a living legend Walt. And so I couldn't, but it, oh, God, what a thrill to me. Talk with that man every morning between takes. One of the great highlights of my life. Now, looking through your very, very prolific career, you've crossed paths with a lot of very, very excellent actors, excellent directors, excellent people. Uh, there's one you, you've already mentioned who I want to talk a little bit more about. And that would be Vincent Price. And I know you worked with him three times. Uh, right. I'm sure you've told these stories again and again, but I love hearing anything about Vincent Price. Uh, so tell us, you know, what it was like to be with him, I'd say, on stage or on camera versus the Vincent Price off camera. Okay, Vincent on, on camera was another huge thrill. Now, I looked up to him, literally. I looked up to him for his talent. I looked up to him because he was six foot four. He's a giant, practically, yeah. <laughs> I was five feet ten, but on that very first morning on Return of the Fly, here we are, we're at 20th Century Fox, I'm starring, co-starring in a film of Vincent Price, and now we begin to do our first scene, and it was such a thrill, I'll never forget that first scene, and I thought, now is he going to be nice, because you know, some of these famous stars are maybe not so nice off camera, but he was wonderful off camera. Every time he walked past me on that first film, he said, I hope you know you've got the best part of that picture. And so he, he, he kept he bolstering my confidence, you know. Now, as to off camera, his generosity, listen to this, Matthew. Can I just jump in? I'm sorry to interrupt, David, but about him, his first interaction with you looking into your dressing room. Oh, yes. He's got these great stories that he always forgets to tell. I do. This is a great. Thank you. Thank you for yeah. reminding me. Of that. <laughs> I know I'm it's irritating. But... No, 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 it's not. After my first scene, I scurried back to my little canvas dressing room to study the next scene. I wanted to be really on my toes. My next scene was with Vincent. So I'm running over my lines again. I've memorized them, but just to be sure. Vincent stuck his head in there. What are you doing, kid? From then on, he called me kid for the rest of the time we knew each other, to the end of his life. Oh, 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 Mr. Price, I'm just going over the next scene. Well, I like a social set. Now, there's a chair out there with your name on the back of it, and I want you sitting in it soon. Get your ass on that chair. That was how he broke the ice for me. <laughs> so anyway, by the time we did the second film, the first film was 1959, Master of the World, 1960, and we were shooting at the Old Republic Studios, which had no air conditioning, and it was August, very hot. So the moment 
the director, William Whitney, called Cut. We all went outside to sit under a tree and in our canvas chairs and just cool off until we went back into the studio. And I was sitting next to my friend and our co-star, Mary, and, and Mary and I were chatting away. We didn't know that Vincent, just quite by accident, had moved up the chair behind us also to cool off. And I was telling Mary Webster, well, you know, tomorrow is Saturday, I'm going to have a busy day, not filming, but I've just rented a little house and I've got to furnish it over the weekend. Uh, all I've got to bed so far. Oh, well, good luck, you know. So back we went on with the filming for the day. Next morning, I'm home. Phone rang, 9 a.m. David, hello, this is Vincent. I understand you need some furniture. Well, 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 yes. Well, my wife and I live at Benedict Canyon and Sunset Boulevard. We have a nice big house and a huge basement filled with furniture we don't want anymore. So if you have the time today, why don't you come over and choose what you want and it's yours? I said, oh, I'd love to, Vincent, but I don't drive. There was a point. You don't drive? No, okay. Okay, I'll see you in about an hour. So all that day, Matthew, Vincent filled his station wagon with furniture. <laughs> Chairs, tables, cutlery, bed, linens, everything. He furnished. It was a little house. Just, you know, a living room, the bed, I think, in the end. There was a bedroom by then, not one that came out of the wall. He filled the house by the end of the day, and I was just absolutely in awe at his generosity. Now, I had a Siamese cat who had just given birth to kittens and was very, very careful about who touched her kitties. So Vincent, with his huge bent down, said, hello, kitty. She reached up with her claws and scratched him blood everywhere. Well, oh, God, oh, God, he's muttering away to himself. I ran into the bathroom, found some band-aids, and I was sticking them up. I thought, oh, God, this is awful. He said, oh, that's okay, kid, that's okay. See you on Monday. He never mentioned furnishing my house again, but he did. During that three-week shoot, that whole Saturday, he completely furnished my house, down to cutlery, everything, everything. That was Vincent. But, you know, he the ham in him loved, he loved people. He just loved people. Because I remember at one point during Master of the World saying to him, Vincent, I seem to be doing rather well. This is my second picture with you and television's going well. Do you think I should stick to just doing feature films? He glared at me. Kid, you do what I do. You do everything. Which he did, as you know. He was everything. So thanks to... Thanks to Vincent, over the years I did. But, but, but anyway, while we were still shooting Master of the World, the last scene of that is when the, the albatross is going down in flames. Vincent has been wounded. He's got this bloody bandage on his head. There was a, a, a restaurant across from the studio, the Tahiti restaurant. And so every day for our lunch break, courtesy of the studio, they paid for our lunch. We went over to the restaurant. So once he got into his bandage, he wasn't going to take it off to try to match it after lunch. So we had to wait uh, outside the studio for the light to turn green for people to walk across. So, of course, most of us had to stop at the red light while we walked. I will always have this vision of Vincent with his bloody head and the wind blowing the bandage behind him. And he knew damn well that every, every <laughs> motorist, that's Vincent Price. What's wrong with him? So he, he just played that to the hilt and he loved every minute of it. And so do we walking behind him. <laughs>
What can you tell about the joke he played on Return of the Fly? I just thought of that. The coffin. God, yes. He was a master of, of politics and surprises. You know, at the end of the of, of that film, of, of, of uh, Return of the Fly, I'm murdered by a monster fly and thrown into a coffin. And we rehearsed it, of course. We had a real coffin sent up from a real mortuary. And I got into the coffin. Now, in, in the rehearsal, the lid was closed and my hand had to come up. I think it's still in the film to push open the lid. And so I got in. It was just rehearsing. And I got in and closed the lid. Vincent clicked the lid shut and said, OK, lunch one hour, everybody. I'm in the dark. I'm in a coffin. I can't get the lid open. Oh, my God, I'm going to die. Then, of course, Vincent could hear me, I'm sure, muttering to myself, but all went well. He opened the coffin. That just one of his many practical jokes. <laughs> so, David, you know, one of my favorite authors is someone who also did some film stuff and did some TV stuff. That's James Clavell. The first book I ever read of James Clavell was actually Shogun. And I was probably around in like high school when I got the book from a thrift store. I read it. I loved it. And then I would pick up more and more of them because I just happened to be there. And one of the books that I loved a lot was King Rat. And I didn't know until really a few years ago that there was a movie about it. And that movie is amazing. And you are in it. So please tell me about the production of that film and working with that cast, because it's quite a great cast also. Oh, yes. I mean, it came. I think I got it because I had just done an episode of The Gallant Men at Warners, in which I played a shell-shocked officer. And so the script of King Rat included a scene in which one of the British prisoners of war of the Japanese goes into shock. There was no dialogue. But this wonderful casting director at Warners then moved to Columbia, where he was casting King Rat. So when he got to this page, he thought, oh, Franklin might be right for this. So he arranged a meeting with this wonderful director, one of my great, great idols, Brian Forbes, who did Whistle Down the Wind and that lovely film. But anyway, he was about to direct King Rat. So I met Brian, and Brian said, well, you know, David, I can't actually read you for this because there's no dialogue. <laughs> but the casting director here tells me you've just played a shell-shocked fellow. So if you want this part, it's just a key role in the film, it's yours. So that's how easily I was cast in this film. I was given a three-week guarantee at $1,500 a week, during which time one of the film's major stars, John Mills, would have finished a film in England and was coming to America to do King Rat. Well, he didn't get there within the three weeks. He, the film he was making in England ran over for some reason. So I, I was, my God, I was in seventh heaven. I would show up at the Columbus Studios for those three weeks and be driven out to the location, this marvelous recreation of the, of the prisoner of war camp at Changi. And I, I've actually stayed in that later, I'll tell you, when I was in the army. We, on our way up to Kuala Lumpur, I stayed in that actual prison. It was a marvelous replica of it in the San Fernando Valley. So every morning I would show up, well, no, John Mills. Eventually they said, David, you don't need to come here and sit here all day when John isn't even in the country yet. You just stay home and we'll call you when he gets here. So I stayed on salary at 1500 a week for several weeks. 
And eventually, of course, wouldn't you know, my wonderful Asian said, oh, David, it's a shame we're just sitting around doing nothing. I said, but I'm getting paid. She said, yes, but there's a wonderful part coming up, a movie of the week at Universal about a prisoner of war camp. And she said, I've virtually got you set for the co-starring with David, David Carradine. Carradine. And the night before, I said, well, what about King Ranch? She said, no, come on, we'll just, we'll take a chance that you'll get this finished before John Mills gets there. Wouldn't you know, Matthew? The night before, I was to go to Universal to start the TV movie of the week. Phone rang, Columbia. John Mills is here. We need you tomorrow morning at 6 at the studio, David. So my poor Asian had to go and apologize to the casting director at Universal, and I never did get to do that. So finally, I'm on, I'm on the set, and, or on location, and just you know, chatting with other actors. There were marvelous actors in it. And there was James Fox and Denham Elliott, a wonderful British actor, and Tom Courtney, who went on, of course, to be very famous later on. But he was quite famous then, too. So, again, I sat for several days, but at least this time on location. Then the day came. My, my scene was up. And the scene consisted of all of the prisoners in this hut under the thumb of the Japanese. And a Japanese uh, came in and he said, there's a radio in this hut. And there wasn't supposed to be one. And that was my cue to suddenly go shell-shocked. And Brian, dear Brian Forbes said, we won't rehearse it, David. You just, you prepare yourself. Let me know when you're ready. Just say the word and we'll do it. Now, I had all the stars of the movie in, the, in this hut with me. And I thought, God, I don't want to screw up now. Okay. But that helped me be nervous, you know. So anyway, I said, oh, all right, Brian. So in came the jack. There's a radio in this hut. And I did, I did whatever I did, you know. And Brian said, cut. He said, fine, David, fine. Got it in one take. So there was one more take to do of me uh, carrying my bed as a punishment outside. And th th those were the two things that I did. So I thought, well, on my way home, it's been a wonderful experience, but it wasn't over. The phone rang. My agent said, I don't know, this might have been November. And she said, David, you're not off the film yet. Brian Forbes is shooting an extra scene at the end of shooting back at the studio of all the officers asleep in their beds as the camera pans over them. So I stayed on salary for some more $1,500. And we, we, we finished that scene. It was almost Christmas. And I remember Tom Courtney had just finished working with us and hopped on a plane and went to Spain to start doing Dr. Zhivago. So he said, Merry Christmas, everyone. So finally, I was home unemployed. But boy, was that a magical time of earnings anyway, you know. And I'm still in the film, and I'm proud of it, you know, and that I got it in one take. And it's a very fine film. It's a long film. I think it might be two and a half hours long. But I think you agree, it's a darn good film. Could you tell Matthew about being at the real Changi prison camp? You weren't a prisoner. It was yeah. afterward, but you were there. Yes, I did mention to you that during the war, when we were on our way from India up to Kuala Lumpur, we actually stayed in the Changi, what had been a prison of war camp. Awful tortures. The Japanese were fiends torturing the British prisoners of war, and they were in that very camp that we stayed in, I think, for a couple of weeks before we went up country to Kuala Lumpur. And the recreation was astonishing. And there in the San Fernando Valley, it really gave me a shock to see it again after all that time. 
It's an interesting subgenre of film. You know, you have like the World War II heroic epics where it's all about D-Day and fighting at the Rhine and things like that. But then you have the prisoner of war films, which are so different. And, you know, like hearing about these stories, it kind of reminds you of like the Steve McQueen film, Papillon, things like that. And it's just such a, a different kind of thing to examine using film. Yes. Actually, you know, Steve McQueen came to observe us on Master of the World because one of our co-stars, as you know, was a, a damn good actor named Charles Bronson. Mm. Bronson's best friend was Steve McQueen, and Steve was shooting at the Old Republic Studios, his series Wanted, Dead or Alive. And Charles was a very private man, very shy man. And, of course, Vince loved everybody on the set sitting around in chairs. But every time the director called Cup while he moved the camera, Charles would go over next door to hang out with Steve McQueen. And I remember one day he's, he did say, come over and see, see what we're doing, Steve. So Steve McQueen saw us all, you know, in our, in our wardrobe and makeup. But it baffled Vincent again to get back to Vincent. As I said, he loved a social set. And he actually said to me, after we had a break and Charles went over to chat and hang out with Steve, he said, Branson bugs me. I don't understand it. He's not he's not friendly. And I, I, I was explaining to him. I said, well, you know, he is a very shy man, I think. But I know he's, he speaks very highly of you between takes. So he, know, he never did join us in the circle of chairs with Vincent holding court during a break in Master of the World. But at least we got to meet Steve McQueen. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty awesome. So, David, let's beam into our Star Trek discussion now. Uh, and uh, this is going to be some good stuff here. Uh, I just rewatched the episode. It's from season three. Is there, in truth, no beauty, as we mentioned? And you are Larry Marvick. It's a very good episode. You know, season three for a lot of Trekkies, it's kind of like a lot of ups and downs. But I really enjoy this one for a number of reasons. And one of those is the acting in this one is just so great. But let's let's start at the beginning before we get into those details. I wanted to ask you, firstly, were you a fan of Star Trek at the time? Not particularly. It wasn't then the legend. It was a very successful show, but it hadn't become the legend it is now. I was aware of it. All actors were. And I, I think I'd maybe seen one or two episodes uh, at home if I'm just sitting around, you know. But no, uh, I, I, I really hadn't all that much of a high opinion of just another damn good television show i thought yeah that's fair enough now do you remember how you landed the part uh yes my you know it was jobbing i'm a jobbing actor i was never a star jobbing job go, and luckily going from job to job i made a good livelihood for from 1956 to 1978 and then beyond that. So anyway, one day the call came, my agent, David, go out and read for it, this show, Star Trek. Oh, yes, I've heard of it. Yeah, okay, well, go and read. And so I, I went out and, and, and read and uh, got home again, the usual thing for a, an actor. And well, I've told I had the part. Actually, sorry, but I think Ralph, you worked with Ralph before, so you did... David was one of the rare actors who didn't audition for that's, Star Trek. He worked right. with Ralph. I did. Ralph Sinensky had directed me in a play, one of the two only plays I ever did, at the Pasadena Playhouse. And from that, I did an episode of 12 O'Clock High, in which I played a character quite similar to the one I was hoping to play in Star Trek, of a character who falls apart and runs amok. So, of course, when Ralph got the script, he said, oh, yes, Dave, get David Franklin for this. So you're right. I didn't audition for it. I went out and said, hey, Ralph, we're going to work together again. 
So, Learn My Lines was a lovely script. And I was told my co-star would be Diana Maldar. And so I went off with high hopes on the first day of shooting. <clears throat> and Ralph was a meticulous director. He had every shot planned, as most good directors do, you know, each day. So the opening scene was we were sitting at a round table. There was me, Diana Maldar, Shatner, Nimoy, McCoy, and James Doohan. Except that when we sat down to light the scene, Shatner and Nimoy weren't there. So we were there in the corner of the studio, shaking their heads vehemently in a conversation with Gene Roddenberry. Well, we ah, I was going to ask you about that, David. I actually had heard some stories about that. And just to kind of set the tone a little bit, uh, yeah, I, I recall this was over Spock's edict, a piece of jewelry he was wearing, right? That's what she, yes. Uh, we didn't know that at the time. All we knew was they stopped, Shatner and Nemo stopped talking to Roddenberry, came over to us and said, we're having a disagreement with Gene, so we're going home. And when it's resolved, we'll come back. What? We have nothing to shoot. Ralph Salinsky's lost his two stars. Of course, as you say, we found out later, I think the next day, actually the boys of Shatner and Nemo made it up with Roddenberry. They did come back the next day. So, It turned out that, yes, that Gene Roddenberry had a a brooch or an article of jewelry or something that he was going to promote commercially for sale. But he wanted mention of it made to the script that we were shooting in there in Truth No Beauty. Well, of course, Shatner and Milboy said, no way. And so it was resolved, certainly by no mention being made of it. And in the meantime, poor Ralph, we're back to, you know, day one when they just walked off the set and gone home. Ralph looked at, at Diana and me and said, you two have a scene coming up in four days, You're one of your love scenes. Could you get that ready? And we'll, we'll have to shoot that until Shatner and Nimoy decide to come back. Well, luckily, Diana and I, I think, have a practice of learning every entire script we're part of. So we knew our lines immediately. It took you know, a while to shift all the equipment to another part of the soundstage. So we worked on that, and then the next morning, all was well, and they came back, and we we went on shooting. Everything was calm and quiet again then. So at this point in your career, you've worked on all sorts of different types of sound stages, but I don't think, you know, outside of The Outer Limits, you'd really done a lot of stuff in sci-fi and that realm of, like, very futuristic things. So first time that you're there on the bridge of the Enterprise and walking through all those corridors in that starship, what is that like for you? Do you remember... Yes, I remember it was awesome. I, as you say, I'd never been in this kind of environment before. And uh, as I was walking through it with the cameraman on a handheld camera, because we were talking about my scene when I ran amok. And I knew, you know, by the script, like, ah, ah, and go crazy and rush into the, to the uh, engineering room. And I think have a sort of a fight with James Doohan and then another one with Shatner. So, yes, I mean, as I walked through these corridors and I saw, I'd never been on a science fiction thing like that before. It was really awesome. And to jump ahead just briefly to that amazing museum in Ticonderoga. I don't know if you've been there, Matthew. It is a recreation of that 1960s first and second, third season of Star Trek. And when they pulled the doors back and showed me, I burst into tears. I just was, it, I was home again, right, right there, and then everything to the smallest nail, because James Corley, who's invented this wonderful museum, 
got blueprints of, of that original set. So he worked from blueprints. He's, he's created it so effectively that William Shatner has given it his blessing. It has gone to, to that museum in Ticonderoga in New York State at least six or seven times. Last Thanksgiving, I think it was, William Shatner was there carving a turkey for the fans because they get, the fans go around in batches of a group, you know, someone explains the whole history of Star Trek. And so, yeah, no, I, I was thrilled to be working in that kind of environment for the first time, yeah. George Takei greeted you? Yes, George Takei. As I got to the first morning of shooting, this is the only time this has happened to me and maybe many other actors either. George Takei walked across the set with his hand outstretched saying, welcome aboard the Enterprise. He made you feel part of a of a family right away. You know? Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And I'm happy that you mentioned that story about you running amok all over the different corridors of the ship, because I love that scene. Like, you look like you're having so much fun doing that. Oh, I did. You know, uh, this this wonderful cinematographer, I'm sorry I don't remember his name now, but he had the handheld camera on his shoulder, you know, following. And he said, David, do what you want, but just show me in rehearsal where you'll pause to go bananas, and then I can come in for a close-up of that. We move on with you. So we 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 did that. We did that. I I showed him, maybe, ah, you know, and and uh, right up to my death scene when I then had to wrestle with Shatner, and then suddenly Diana Maldo comes on the scene, her character. God, she was a good actress. And I look at her, and I remember saying, I can't remember her name, Miranda, maybe. Mm-hmm. Miranda, I love you. And I dropped dead, and I remember Shatner, somebody bending over me saying, he's dead. And that meant I was off the show. I'd finished my part. <laughs> <laughs> it is very cool that you're one of the characters who McCoy gets to say he's dead, Jim, and that's that's pretty that's historic. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right, he's dead, Jim. That's yeah, true. I died in quite a few. Well, yes, you know, I was murdered by the monster in Return of the Fly. So uh, actors love death scenes, Matthew. I don't ask me why. <laughs> I think it's because you're totally in control of how you die. You don't have lines to say. You just have to figure out a way to expire as effectively <laughs> as possible. So I'd like, yes, I love dropping dead for Diana Mulder. <laughs> uh, let's talk about Diana a little bit because the number one, the scenes that you have with her are amazing. Both of you did such an excellent job. You know, I, I feel like you, we really got to see a lot more of your chops in this, especially. Uh, mm-hmm. And Diana seems like just an absolutely wonderful scene partner. So talk to me about working with her, and especially I want to hear about smooching her as well. Oh yes, well, I mean, she was. Damn good actress. And I didn't know her, didn't know her work, but she had worked, as I had several times, with Ralph. So he automatically cast her. And he told me how good she was. She had such a stillness and an authority about her. It just emanated from her. As as Diana Maldo, and certainly as the character she played, she was cool. She was so cool. And... I think she went on from this to Star Trek The Next Generation. I think she was quite quite a lot because she was so damn good. And, well, kissing her, you know, is always wonderful. It's always nice to get a chance to kiss the leading lady. And so we just, we worked very carefully. And, and Ralph was very good with close-ups of her and me and her and, me, and together. And then, and then we kissed. Yeah, that's all. It was just... It was great. You can't complain about that, Matthew. Believe me, kissing Diana Maldon. But just 
above all, her prof- sheer professionalism, nothing fazed her. You know, when we were sitting at the table and Shatner and Nimoy had left for the day, she didn't fall apart. She just said, well, what do we do now? You know, she was cool all the time. From the other clips I've seen of her in other things and other talk shows and other programs that she's done, she very much comes off as this like very stoic kind of person who's not easily phased by things. And I don't, I don't want to use the term that she's a tough lady, but there's something more to that. Like she's very regal, I think. Yeah, regal, yes, regal, not tough. No, no. I've worked with a few tough ones, no names mentioned, but a few really tough ones. But no, Diana wasn't. She regal is the word. I think of her that way now for the rest of my life, Matthew. Diana Maldo was regal. Yes, she was. And when we talked to her, you know, a time or two about that short film we were planning, it was my first time talking. I'm like, boy, she really is exactly like David was saying. She's just really cool and, yeah. and nice. and But determined. Uh, she she yeah. just said, oh, I, know, I, I know you're having a wonderful time, but David, no, I, I'm, I did it. I've done it all. I love my animal shelter. I love Martha's Vineyard, and I'm never leaving it. And she laughed. Any time we called her, she said, oh, you guys, you're still trying. No, I'm happy <laughs> on Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> Now, on this podcast, I do like to get into a lot of nitty gritty about the episodes that people are in. And I haven't asked you about this yet, David, but the costume you wear, it's such a, an anachronistic kind of costume. But I've heard different things that people have talked about what they've worn in Star Trek. Do you remember how that felt? Was it itchy? Was it tight? Was it too loose? Oh, yeah. I can't remember how it was at the time, but it came up years <laughs> later. One day I'm sitting here. Uh, by the way, just to backtrack a little, I'm legally blind now, but I still get around beautifully with Jonathan's help, you see. So he's insisted I move into his condominium here. And so one day the phone rang and somebody introduced himself as James Corley. He explained about the museum to Star Trek and he said, I've just bought your costume from the 96 episode, uh, 1968 episode, for $15,000. I said, why? He said, because Star Trek fans are fanatics. Even if you've only done one episode, that means you have important stories to tell us about your episode. So he said, I've got it on display now, with a couple of other displays of other actors who've done Star Trek episodes. I would like you to I'll fly you out here now and have you pose in your costume for the fans. So I thought, oh, my God, that was 1968. Do I go on a crash diet? Fortunately, I hadn't I hadn't gained too much. So we did that. When I got there, sure enough, there was my costume, and I got into it. All of me got into it except a little bit at the side stuck out. <laughs> and so for the photo opportunity with the fans, I would just turn a little to this side with the camera here. Couldn't see my stomach sticking out at the back and pose happily for about, about an hour in my original costume. I was so thrilled. That's amazing. That's so cool. That Not only that they had it, that you could actually still wear that costume. That's I can't fit into my clothes from that long ago. Come on. I know. I was amazed. You did have to cut out the cupcakes and ice cream for a little bit before. <laughs> but, you know, uh, I mean, he paid $15,000 for that. And then I heard a rumor uh, amongst the crew and the cast when I was doing that uh, my shoot that I think it was Nimoy's uh, costume was up for a charity auction for $75,000 for just oh, that fans was- are so fanatic about Star Trek. Thank goodness. I'm glad they are. 
Now, outside of Diana, you know, you had a lot of scenes with Shatner, as we mentioned, with Nimoy, with James Doohan, with DeForest Kelly. Did you get to spend any time chatting with them in between scenes at all? Some of James Doohan, because James, I don't know how far back this is from Star Trek. James had just come down from Canada, and I think it was his first acting job on something I was doing. And he was awfully nice, wonderful fellow. So we sat and chatted, you know, and I remember him saying to me, is there much work for British actors in Hollywood? Little did he know he would be gainfully employed, you know. And I said, yes, and I liked him very much. So, yes, he and I chatted a bit. I liked DeForest Kelly very much, very quiet, gentle, nice man. Nimoy stayed in character, and I understood that. Some actors do, you know, like Vincent, they like to sit around with the chairs and chat and chat. Nimoy stayed in character. It wasn't standoffish or unpleasant. He just, when we finished the scene, he'd go off by himself and just sit and think. Shatner, I didn't enjoy working with. I've, I've read and heard that of all the actors who did Star Trek, half of us did like working with him, and the other half not quite so much. I won't say I disliked him intensely, but and I, I can see now why he well, was frankly trying to direct me. This was in a rehearsal of, of my mad scene. You know, I was just getting the moves right. And so I'm doing a, a phony struggle with Shannon, just to let the camera see where we were going. And Shannon was saying, relax, this is just a rehearsal. I was so tempted to say, that man over there, Mr. Shatner, is the director. You're not. Of course, I didn't. I, I wouldn't. And this is strictly, I don't know, you may have to cut this out of your of this taping. It was four o'clock in the afternoon. And I think traditionally, apparently, several stars of series will take a little nip just to keep them going for the last two hours. He was breathing some bourbon fumes over me. And I thought, no, I, I don't like working with you. And it stayed that way until years later, got the invitation to go to Ticonderoga. I was told, oh, you'll be here with William Shatner. And I thought, no, I don't want to do that. So I said I was busy and I didn't accept the invitation that time. Now I've come to know, they told me that he is a pussycat now. He loves to go to Ticonderoga. He loved, I think I told you he was cutting up turkey for Thanksgiving for the fans. He is a pussycat now. So I'm kind of sorry that I felt that way about him working with him. If I get a chance, you know, to work with him again, I'll, I'll make up for it by showing my admiration for him as an actor. Because I've seen him in a lot of other things prior to Star Trek, and he's a damn good actor. I mean, I'll say this to kind of validate you a little bit. Uh, I've spoken to a lot of folks who did the original series as well. And a lot of them, it's been 50-50, uh, where a lot of folks have had good experiences and a lot of other folks have had very bad ones. Uh, there's some actors that I've spoken to that had really, really terrible ones, especially working in the original series that, are, that were even worse than what you told me. So it's definitely been a lot of ups and downs. But I, I you know, as far as my personal opinion, I haven't met the man myself, so I don't really know. But uh, it's good to hear that at least now in his older age, he's a little bit nicer to people. Oh, a lot nicer. He's really, they've said he's a pussycat. They, they yeah. love him to go, go to Ticonderoga. And I, I'm trying to put myself in his place as the lead, the star of a successful series. You want it to be the best. So I, I, I think maybe he was just saying to me, it's only a rehearsal, but yes, this, I want this to be the best scene in this. And I think he had the, the, the care of, of the ultimate 
show of each episode yeah. very much in his head, and that may have simply prompted him to overreact to a rehearsal. That, that could happen. That could be the case. Yes, yes. Uh, David, are you somebody who likes to watch the work that you've been in? And I'm, the reason I'm asking is because I'm curious if you watched your original Star Trek episode when it first came out, or if you've watched it since then. Oh, I've watched it since then. Of course, I have a DVD of it. Oh, yes. I'm very, I am very, very self-critical. I always have been. And so I, I still see things I would rather have done better in Star Trek, although I've never mentioned what they are to anybody, and I never will. But yes, I, I'm pleased and proud with the episode. What is really fun is very, very early ones. I had done, as I told you, five or six live shows, but then I had to... That was a guild called AFTRA, the American Federation of TV and Radio Artists. I still hadn't joined SAG. So by joining SAG, my agent accepted a role for me in a Disney picture, ironically, called Johnny Tremaine, yep. in which I had two words, not two scenes, two words. And in in this film, which I have watched and laughed myself silly at, I'm, I'm one of the British Redcoats, and I pop my head out from behind her, I tried after them. By saying after them, I joined the Screen Actors Guild and I said going home, I'm a Hollywood actor now. <laughs> so yes, I do watch myself. And the early ones, you know, I think, oh God, thank God I learned something going along the way, you know, because of and now Greer Garson, for instance, one of the one of the shows on Matinee Theatre was Pride and Prejudice, one of her great films was Lawrence Harvey. And we had stayed in touch. I, I think I've left this whole story out, but yeah. she was in Julius Caesar, an MGM film in 53. And so MGM, she and and the other lady, can't think of her name now, had, had cameo roles, short parts, you know, but of course they were stars. James Mason, Louis Calhoun, they were the stars of the movie Julius Caesar. So she went to England with her mother just to, for a, a holiday and granted me an interview. And we spent the whole day together. I followed her around and she gave a speech at Birmingham University, appeared that night in all of her glamour finery, love earrings and off the shoulder. So we, we, that was 1953. I had told her during that day how much I wanted to be an actor. So we stayed in touch. And she, like Angela, there's no grand lady about her whatsoever. MGM may have kind of portrayed her as such, but she wasn't. She was really down to earth. And so I can't remember how I got into onto this now. Oh, no. <laughs> um, it was, you were talking about, uh, about, this was feedback on your early acting from Greer Garson. She sent you postcards about your live oh, TV yes. performances. Yes. So, yeah. And so when the time came for me to actually feel by 78 that I'd done 22 years in Hollywood and I felt, okay, I feel it's time to go, that I stayed in touch with Greer and told her I don't know where I'd move to. And she said, you must come to New Mexico. I've, she said, I've lived here for years. And she had. I thought she lived in a foreign country because her letters to me always had the postmark, Pecos, New Mexico. And I thought, that must be a foreign country. So <laughs> I didn't know until she explained to me, no, it's part of the United States, David. <laughs> so thanks to her, I did invest my money in, in land right here in Santa Fe in 1978. That's thanks to Greer Dawson, actually, that I moved here. Oh, wow. She did initially say you blinked too much. <laughs> oh, yes, because she, oh, gosh, you know. <clears throat> I told our cast doing the television version of 
um, um, I, I said, I told, I think her name was Marcia Henson. I think she was playing Greer's part. And I said, Marcia, I just talked to Greer. She's going to be watching. She said, what? That's all I need, you star of the film. Why did you do so? She was furious with me. Anyway, we made the film. And Greer would send me little postcards saying, yes, you move too quickly. You bring too much. I, I learned all this, you know, by way of the, the postal service from postcards from Gurgasen. Yeah. Hey, everybody. We'll get right back to the interview in one second, but I wanted to remind you all to check out Trek Untold over at Patreon. Patreon is the best way to directly support creators of things you like through a monthly subscription of an amount that you can choose. Trek Untold has a few different tiers already with different benefits, ranging from early access to episodes, the ability to ask a future guest questions, exclusive merchandise, and other bonuses that I'd love to offer, but first I need to grow that Patreon community to do that. Trek Untold has been around since mid-2020 and has grown a ton since then, thanks to listeners and viewers like you. Through a platform like Patreon, you can help me keep improving the quality of each episode and keep bringing you new interviews with folks that make the Star Trek universe what it is. If this community can grow more over on Patreon, I can offer new perks like watch parties, exclusive Trek Untold episodes, being able to directly interact with guests, and other things, but in order to do that, I need to know my audience wants these things. The best way to tell me what you want is by supporting us on Patreon, so please, Check us out at patreon.com slash trekuntold today and become a bigger part of the Trek Untold family. And now, back to the interview. We've talked a lot about different roles you've had, but I don't know if we've actually talked about whether or not you had formal training in acting. No, I had absolutely none. When I opened my mouth on the first um, segment of Matinee Theater, that was my act. Well, there was an acting debut (laughs) In a sense, but not really. Yeah. Um, well, I was trained to be an architect reluctantly. Our, our uh, teacher, our, our instructor, also loved theater. So at Christmas time, one time, we're still only architectural students. He said, let's do a play. And do you remember what the play was, Jonathan? No. Uh, oh, The Merry Wives of Windsor. Merry Wives of Windsor. And so he said, I'm casting you all in the play, and you can invite your families to come and see it. It's just for two two showings. So I was cast originally as Pym, P-Y-M, who sat at the feet of Falstaff. But then Falstaff, the actual man himself, got drafted into the army. So our, our instructor said, well, Frankham, you know, you've been listening to his lines. You're going to be Falstaff. They tied cushions to me, and I waddled around the stage. This was my acting debut. <laughs> my parents, of course, came to see it. And they were going home, and the bus, and my mother said, I, I quite enjoyed that, didn't you? And my father, who thought all actors were sissies, had watched me as Falstaff waddling around the stage and didn't know it was me. He said, yes, it was all right. Which one was David? And that's the title of my autobiography. My dear father came to mend his ways and appreciate actors late in his life. But that's all he's, he knew. Of the, Which one was David, eh? <laughs> um, the first time I met David and he, someone dragged him over here and for tea. So we were talking about that. And you know, the way people say, if I ever write an autobiography, I will call it this. Mm. And they never do. Mm. So, but he had said, well, if I ever do an autobiography, I'll call it. Which one was David? after my dad. After my dad. So when it came around that Jim Hollyfield, a good friend of David's, actually proposed an autobiography to Bear Manor Media, 
and they accepted the idea and we thought oh geez we have to write a book now <laughs> i said you have to call it which one was david yeah and that it's out there and you can buy it on amazon yeah but we're gonna have some links in the description of this episode and the show notes for places that you can pick up which one is david and that's gonna be the best way you guys can learn even more about mr frankham so david as we come to a wrap of this interview today uh, i wanted to ask you a few questions that i like to call the lightning round questions but they're they're hardly lightning round they're not fast at all these are probably like the hardest questions i'm going to ask you today okay <laughs> shoot all right let's go for it so let me ask you, what was the best day you ever had on a set? And what was the worst day you ever had on a set? Oh, easy to answer in both cases. The first day was, of course, although I'd done television, being on a movie set, the first day of shooting The Return of the Fly with the great Vincent Price. And in a co-starring role, there's no question about it. My my longtime dream nagging at me since I was 16 really came true that day. The worst day, and I can't remember the name of the episode, I thought it had gone well. I worked with a fine actor named Patrick. Patrick O'Neill? Patrick O'Neill, damn good actor. And we'd enjoyed doing our scenes together. And then suddenly, at a break, the director came up to me and said, I can't work with you. You're not doing what I'm telling you. So I'm, I'm going to direct you through the assistant director now. And he walked away. I looked at Patrick, he looked at me, he said, looks okay to me. I never found out. But that was awful to be humiliated like that. You know, there were crew members standing around when he said that quite loudly. And he did indeed not direct me uh, for the rest of that episode. It was a very strange low in, in, in my acting career. Fortunately, it never happened again, fortunately. Mm. Well, actually, it almost did once. May, may I throw in this little anecdote? I told you my friend... Dirk Bogart, who a famous actor in England, had gone to Hollywood to make the Franz Liszt story. It was directed by George Cukor. Then one of Dirk's co-stars, uh, a European actor, had a very strong accent. So when they ran the movie, his accent was so strong that Cukor felt, well, they won't understand him. So I don't know how I got the, the part of dubbing him in, I, but I did dub him in. And Cukor was delightful. I worked with Capuchin. I don't know if she was the, her first movie, I think. And we had a great time. It was almost a week of dubbing. This poor actor, a prominent role in the Francis story, would take his friends to see the film and another actor's voice is coming out of him, my voice. But we had a very good time and Cucor was delightful and great fun. So then we shoot ahead a little bit to the end of My Fair Lady and he's Cucor's post-dubbing on My Fair Lady. I was cast automatically as one of the voices because they needed authentic people who could talk like that, you know. And so I, we were given little cards with our dialogue on them. First day of a five-day shoot, and I was guaranteed a $1,000 a day, a day. So I'm looking at my, my oh, I, I think I'll ask Mr. Kukor if I can change that. He was in conference with a member of the crew, and I went, Mr. Cooper, could I please change it? I wrote this. I want it spoken as written. And he turned his back. Oh, he's not going to be friendly on this this thing. So all that morning, we started the dubbing in, in Covent Garden, you know, and I wasn't called up to the mic. So at the lunch break, I was walking off the set, and one of his assistants came over to me and said, Mr. Cooper doesn't want you to come back. I said, oh, all right, I'll see you tomorrow then. 
he doesn't want you to come back. So I went to casting and I said, something's wrong here. I haven't done anything yet on the film, but Kuko doesn't want me back on the picture for dubbing. And he said, well, you've signed a contract for $5,000. So to this day, Matthew, although I said not one word on My Fair Lady, I still get residuals for my $5,000 week on My Fair Lady. Thanks again to George Kuko. So, I'm sorry, I digress. Shoot, shoot. Oh, that, that's that's an amazing story. And I also want to commend you for being the very first person on this podcast to mention Cappuccino. Oh, oh wow. Oh, God, <laughs> I love that lady. She, you know, she had a tragic ending. And you, yes. You know, she committed suicide. But initially, there in 1960, she had never made a film. She was a top model in Paris, lovely lady, very shy, very elegant, regal, regal, really. And she was represented by Howard Hughes, who, well, frankly, had the hots for her, although she kept saying no. <clears throat> but he kept calling uh, whenever she, on a Sunday, Dirk had a day off and we all gathered around his house, which is how I got hit on the head by Judy Garland. But that's another story. And so the phone would go and it would be, how would she, is she still there? Who's she talking to? And poor Cap, who called her Cappy, was just under his thumb the whole time. But she, And she'd never acted. I thought she was good. And she went on to what film with, with, let me see, a John Ford film, I think, with John Wayne. She had a good career. Why tragically she took her own life, I just don't know. Yeah. And on that note, too, David, you can't just tease me with that either. You got to tell me about Judy Garland hitting you with a shoe. <laughs> well... It was Dirk's birthday, and he was in town shooting the Francis story, and he said, come over for my birthday. And I said, okay. He said, just a few friends here. So when I went there, there was my friend Gladys Cooper, Roddy McDowell, and sitting on a couch with her husband, Mr. and Mrs. Luft. And Mrs. Luft, of course, was Judy Garland. And Dirk loved to play pranks on people. As he led me over to, he said, well, David, you always wanted to meet God. Here she is. And he sat me down beside her. And she was lovely. She wasn't wearing any makeup. She was in a, a, a black jump top and shoulder. Uh, sh- uh, what was I trying to say? A sweater or something? No, a jacket. And, oh. and she was pretty in black, black hair, you know. But she wasn't wearing any makeup because she knew she would only be with friends like Dirk, you see. So we were chatting away. And Dirk had said to me, it's my birthday, but don't bring any presents. I don't want presents. I just want a few friends around me to celebrate my birthday. And I thought, well, for heaven's sake, she has a new album out called The Letter, 398 in those days, an LP. So of course, I got that and handed it to Dirk. And I'm chatting away to this living legend. And, and Dirk said, oh, look what David's brought. So she looked over and said, God damn it, I hate that fucking thing. And she went over, she grabbed it away from me, and she hit me on the side of the head. I hate that fucking thing. I didn't know she hated that effing thing. <laughs> Apparently, it was not a usual Garland Hits album. It was a recitative in which she told a story and occasionally sang a song. It didn't sell well. So, of course, she hated it, and she hated anybody who brought it to Joe's birthday party. It's a whack. Fortunately, on other Sundays, I, I was up again, you know, from gatherings around him, and she, the Luffs were there, and she she, I, she completely forgot it. For one thing, of course, when she did this, oh, I'll leave, I'll leave. No, no, her husband said, Luff jumped in. It's all right. Jude, Jude, they call Jude. Here, take the pills, take the pills. 
took the pills and she went up a staircase to the bathroom. He said, she'll be fine. The staircase was cantilevered. There was no rail. And I'm watching her tottering up, hanging on to other. I'm going to kill Julie. She's going to fall off the stairs. She didn't. Of course, she got up there, took her pills, came down about five minutes later. And I'm still ready to run out of the building if she attacks me again. Now, what were we talking about? She had completely erased the whole episode. <laughs> Very strange. Oh, one more, one more joke about Dirk. He said, I don't want you to tell Sid Luff you're an actor. He said, I want you to tell him you're a very successful businessman coming to Hollywood to invest his money in a film because Sid's always looking for money for a Judy film. So every time I saw the laughs, I had to pretend I wasn't an actor. And Sid Luff, sure enough, would say, how's it going? Are you meeting the right people? Or Sid Luff, he never did find out I was an actor. And poor. <laughs> that right there, ladies and gentlemen, is a reason why you should read which one is David, because there's <laughs> stories like that in there. Like that, that's a definite advertisement right there. Oh, uh, thank you. Thank you, Matthew. It's so nice of you. Yeah. Uh, David, how about the piece of film or television that you are the most proud of? Yes. Gradually, I went from after them, you know, getting my side card to supporting roles. And then there was a kind of level, a lot of busy actors were on, jogging actors, just you were co-star. Co-star didn't really mean very much. But for an episode of 12 O'Clock High, my billing read, guest star David Frankham. And I was so, I thought, I've peaked. That's it. I've done it. It's taken me 20 years maybe to get this far. But that was the reason I had the knots in my stomach about wanting to be an actor. I made it. Now, of course, I didn't get to be guest star all the time. I went back to co-star and lots of things, too. But there it is. I, I Sometimes I run the film. Just look at my billing. So, yes, that was my, that was my highlight, Matthew. Yes, no question about it. And I worked with a damn good actor on that called Richard Anderson. If ever seen Paths of Glory, you know what a damn good actor he is. And he got second billing to me. So it really was a highlight for me. <laughs> well, how about David? The role that was the most challenging for you, but ultimately became the most rewarding. I would almost say the same thing. It was an episode called In Search of, no, To Search and Destroy. Seek and Destroy. Seek and Destroy. And I had to play a challenging role in that I was playing a, a very famous scientist, an inventor, but I was also uh, an alcoholic. So I had to find a fine line indicating that I had a little bit to drink without, you know, being a stage for like that, you know. So I think that was certainly the most challenging. And also I knew I was getting guest star billing. I had to, I had to be good. And every every day on that set, I kept looking at myself thinking, am I overdoing it? No, the director, Donald McDougall, never said a word to me. Which taught me one of two things. I'm either so bad he can't help or I'm good enough that he doesn't think I need help. So I hope the latter was the case. Because when I see it now, I think, yes, that really was my my biggie. And I think I did a, a good job. And tell yeah. how you almost lost that job by the lamp phone. Oh, my gosh. There's a sag rule that you must not go on the set when they're moving scenery for obvious reasons. An arc lamp might fall on you. Well, I, I was so into my... Part and I was thinking, oh, I'm slight, in this scene. How, how, in his, how drunk am I in this scene? 
Okay, so I was moving over to my bed where I was going to sort of plump down, being a little bit drunk. And as I sat there, against the rules, I should not have been there, an arc lamp fell and hit me and knocked me out. And I don't think I remember anybody saying he's dead, isn't he? Oh, I think, yeah, the way you've told it before <laughs> is David says he remembers hearing someone saying, I think he's dead. Yeah, I think he's dead, that's right. And then he woke up in the hospital. And so here was the director said, oh, don't worry, David. We want you just to get better. We'll recast the part. And I thought, like, hell, you will. <laughs> this is guest star David Frank. I'm going to finish this part if it kills me. So I managed to stag back. All the, the crew applauded how brave I was. I wasn't brave. I was just protecting my part. And so I uh, didn't even have to, have to wear a bandage. I think they suck a Band-Aid or something. Where It just grazed me. If it hit me, I would die, I suppose. And a, a, a good Star Trek connection here is <laughs> one of the 12 o'clock high actors who you didn't even do any scenes with, but he came to visit you in the hospital, and it was... I can't remember his name. Frank Overton. Frank Overton, yeah. He wasn't in my scenes in that in that 12 o'clock high, but he actually took the time to come in just to make sure that this actor on the, on the one episode was going to be okay. Very, I was so moved and touched by that. So you got a guest starring role and you got a concussion. That's a heck of a week. <laughs> yes, yes, right. <laughs> All right, well, David, how about something that you know today that you wish you could tell your younger self? To be more confident, because when Alec Guinness gave me the letter of introduction to Peter Shaw, Angela's husband, and he was a big wheel agent at William Morris, I showed up with my letter of introduction and walked in and introduced him. He said, David, I'll read this now, but I want you to do something for me. Said, yes, of course, what? He said, Go out and come in again as so though you meant it. That's the most sensible advice I ever got from anybody. Because much as I wanted to be there and was there and was hoping to have a career there, I was overawed by it all initially, I think. So I would tell a young actor, no matter how scared you might feel inside, always look confident. My agent always said to me, never go in hat in hand. So you're saying, oh, please, I would like to get this part. Never. She said, you just march in so you feel the part's already yours. That was great advice from her. And that certainly is advice I would give any young actor. Look confident, even if you're not initially when you're starting to work anywhere, in theater, anywhere. Great, great piece of advice there. Now, you know, as we mentioned at the start of this interview, David, you are the record holder here on Trek Untold at 97 <laughs> years old, which is amazing. And, you know, 97 years of experience on this planet here, that's a lot. You've lived through so many different things. You've served the military. You've been on stage. You've been on screen. You've been on TV. You've been in Star Trek. What do you want to be the legacy of David Frankham? I think the acting. I'm, I'm proud of my seven years with the BBC. I had two highly rated radio shows, which in turn got me to become friendly with many actors who helped me later on in Hollywood. Uh, I think just if someone said, David, Frank, oh, yes, wasn't he that actor? I think, I'll, of course, because that's what I longed to be when I was only 16. If, if people would still remember that I, my dreams came true, my wish came true. And uh, yes, I've lived through World War II. Our neighbors were bombed and killed six doors up from us. There were bad things, but there were so many good things. And I've never, never regretted Rosemary Clooney telling me 
yes, if you move there, I'll get you started. And she did. So as an actor, yes, I'm glad. I, I think if I hadn't had that one time a guest star, David Franklin, I might not give it the significance I feel now, but I peaked. I made it then. I thought, okay, a dream. When I was 16, that dream came true when I did that episode of 12 O'Clock High. And Jonathan, I want to actually ask you that question because uh, you know you are the biographer and you've been here helping us throughout this entire interview as well. I think you're an important part of this conversation. Uh, for you, what do you want David's legacy to be? You know what? Uh, <laughs> gosh, I'll backtrack a little bit because... I put you on the spot now. <laughs> you have. I think you have. I think so. Well, I, I have two, two thoughts that I'm... So I'll just throw them both out. Is when David got dragged to my house against his will to meet this young actor who um, was all excited about it. And we hit it off immediately that very day and have been best friends ever since. But at that time, he was really out of the Hollywood loop. So this was 2008 and people couldn't find him. We just found out soon after that, that they'd been looking for him to do a feature on uh, 101 Dalmatians making of... Totally retired. Totally retired. He had no idea that anyone remembered him. (laughs) So, you know, it was around that time, maybe around 2010, I, I thought, well, if I'm excited to meet him and remember his things and other people must. So I put my address out there for people to write to him on an autograph website. Things started trickling in. A letter I always remember is a woman from Finland who said, I remember in the 60s when TV was coming in and you were always my favorite American actor. He had no idea people in the 60s in Finland were following his career. He or thought he anybody, was, anybody anywhere. Well, he, he used to say, I, I didn't know I was remembered, but he also didn't think he had made enough of an impression to be remembered in the first place. It's true. So all this stuff started coming out. And then 2014, we got him on Facebook. And literally within two days, he got a message through Facebook from someone saying, we've been looking for you to do a commentary on Tales of Terror, and we couldn't <laughs> find you. So, you know, he had no idea anyone remembered him, let alone wanted to interview him like you would. So gradually that's built up. And then through Facebook too, we've got, he's got calls from people who've become good friends saying, could you do a voice in my animated cartoon? So that's come up. So he's knows he's David knows he's remembered now and his when well thought of, and people have bought his autobiography to go back to how his legacy and going back to being an actor, this is our joke, is David says, well, where would I be without you, Jonathan? I'd say, you'd be dead. <laughs> we say that out loud to people, yeah. yeah. Because <laughs> I think all this has rejuvenated him in the sense of going to conventions and meeting people and younger people and young creative people. But I go back, so... It's like, okay, when I die, Jonathan, what are you going to do with me? And I say, well, I'll sprinkle your ashes on the sidewalk when it's icy. And he's like, no, not really. Um, so I thought, you know, his good friend Doris Lloyd is in the Forest Forest Lawn Cemetery in Hollywood. She was in tons of, of shows. And Doris Laird Lloyd, Krieger, his hero, Laird, Laird Krieger, who Laird also inspired him to be an actor. He's like a bit away. So I thought, you know, we'll do a, a crowdfunding and get David a little plot in Forest Lawn Cemetery. And we thought, what can, you know, all his fans who contribute will have their names popped in there with him. <laughs> um, but I thought, what will we put on it? And we thought, David Frankham is Dave's actor. That's how, because that's what he wanted to be. And that's what will identify him on his final resting place, which won't really be on my icy sidewalk. 
he doesn't pay compliments, so this is quite overwhelming to hear all this. I'll probably never hear it again. <laughs> oh, no. We'll go back to you sprinkling on the icy sidewalk. Okay. 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 That's why we're recording this, David, so you can check it as evidence later on. Be like, no, oh, <laughs> yeah. you said that. You said that to me. Yeah. And that's the plan is he'll get actor put on his his final thing. I, I love hearing stories like that about how it's really a dream come true and you followed your dreams, you pursued it, and and here you are today. And that brings me to my final question, David, to tie it all together in a perfect little ribbon. What's the best thing for you about being a part of the Star Trek universe? I think you just put the words in in, in your own mouth. What the best thing was being a part of that universe. I know now what a legendary series and other other actors, you know, just being a part of, of a legendary series, even if it was only one episode. That that I think is a high watermark for me. Is it all worthwhile? That's very true. And Trekkies, especially, you know, we we love meeting folks, even if you do one episode. Those one episodes are very important to us. And uh, I very much admire that you have stuck with the fans and you've accepted the fans as part of this. And that's the fact that you're still doing conventions that well. That's just amazing. Mm, I love it. And I think I don't know how true this story is. He'll probably deny it. That will. somebody at, at Disney Studios said, David, if you make it to 101, we will fly you in to host a special screening of 101 Dalmatians. So that's my goal, Matthew. <laughs> Got to make it to 101. But 101 at Disney Studios, and we're going to make it happen. That's the plan. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, David, Jonathan, thank you, gentlemen, so much for your time today. You know, Jonathan, I appreciate you chiming in to help make sure you know, the stories are moving along and everything like that. Appreciate you for that. And David, as well, thank you for your many, many decades of work on screen, on stage, on film, on television, on everything, uh, and especially just for being you. I mean, I, I definitely feel like this is a rejuvenated version. I've only just met you really here, but... I can tell there's definitely uh, something about you right now in this in this current time that you're feeling that this is just the David Franken you've always wanted to be. And uh, I, I very much thank you for your time, your energy today, and your amazing stories across so many years of Hollywood. So We're 97 all the way up We're to friends. 997. That's the next thank goal. You. We're friends now. From now thank on, you. Friends. Call whatever you like. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, David. And I feel like this is a very appropriate way to end this interview here. But for you, David, live long and prosper. Thank you. <laughs> you had the last word. Okay, thank you, Matthew. God bless you. That's it for this week's show. Thanks again for checking out Trek Untold. If you aren't already, please follow Trek Untold on social media, where you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok, among others, all at Trek Untold. Don't forget to subscribe to us on YouTube for the video versions of this show at youtube.com slash at Trek Untold. And subscribe to us on whatever platform you're listening to the audio version on. We always appreciate likes, shares, comments, thumbs up, ratings, and reviews, and whatever you can do to help spread the word about this podcast and inform other Trekkies about why they need to check this show out. If you're able to financially support this show, visit patreon.com slash trekuntold to learn about the different ways you can contribute to keeping this show going full speed ahead. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz. This has been Trek Untold, and remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.